the stroller at the hop, 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 hop. When the record starts spinning, you chill it. So when you're chicken at the hop, 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 hop. Do the dance sensations that are sweeping the nation at the hop, 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 hop. Let's go to the hop. Let's go to the hop, oh baby. Let's go to the hop, oh baby. Let's go to the hop. John Madeira, and you just heard his At the Hop, rock and roll classic. He was born in Philadelphia, PA, and at the time, that city was teeming with groups such as the Spaniels, the Clovers, Harvey and the Moonglows, Billy Ward and the Dominoes, and the great Jackie Wilson. Rock and roll was starting to take root, and John Madeira was destined to make rock and roll history. In 1957, he launched a solo career with his first record, Be My Girl, reaching the national charts. And that same year, he co-wrote with David White a song called Do the Bop. And at the advice of Dick Clark, whose local show was going national, American Bandstand, they changed that to At the Hop. Danny and the Juniors recorded it. By Christmas of 1957, that song reached number one on the pop and R&B charts. And now it's part of our music history, and it's just a rock and roll classic to today. He has followed that up in producing such classics as The Fly for Chubby Checker, You Don't Know Me by Leslie Gore, and producing Danny and the Juniors' Rock and Roll is Here to Stay, among many other awesome hits that have really been a, like the soundtrack of our life. He discovered a young Leon Huff and Daryl Hall and John Oates. Hey, it's much more fun to hear John talk about his story himself, so let's get to this interview. John and I are coming at you right now. 19 years old when I, uh, I, was, I was really loving music and trying, uh, working three jobs and taking vocal lessons, mm-hmm. um, trying to do that. I wanted to be a singer. 
Wow. And I did. I made, I made my, that's how I got in the music business. I was taking uh-huh. vocal lessons along with my three, three jobs I had. And um, the, the uh, vocal teacher, I came in one day and he had a song he had written. And he uh-huh. played me the song and he said, let me hear you sing it. And he taught me the song. I sang and he liked it. Uh, we went and recorded the song and it made the national charts. And um, I was getting ready to make my second record um, when I met uh, my partner, who became my writing partner for my life, was Dave White. Wow. Okay. And uh, Dave was singing in a group. I heard them on the corner one night singing, and they were all 16 years old. And mm-hmm. um, and Dave, um, I actually met someone the next day, and I said, I heard these guys singing outside. They were really good. He said, um, and my friend said, yeah, that, that's Danny Rapp. And um, some of the guys from up... Um, about five blocks away, I said, I'd love to meet them. And they came down, mm-hmm. this Dave White came down, and I met him. Then he'd start coming down and hanging out at the house, and um, we'd start singing songs together, and he had a, he played ukulele, and a baritone ukulele. And uh, we'd start singing Bye Bye Love, and Wake Up Little Susie, and um, a whole lot of shaking going on, and we'd be singing his songs. And finally, I one day I was, Going out to pick up a car, actually, I'd bought a, a, a used car, and um, Dave took a ride with me on the subway elevator train, and I, uh, I said to Dave, you know, I watch Bandstand all the time. I said, Dave, and they, the kids are doing this dance called The Bop. I said, we should write a song called The Bop. And we did. So we wrote the song, and I recorded it as my, going to be my second record. Uh-huh. So it was, uh, let's do The Bop. Wow. And, um... Capitol Records, who I was under contract to, they uh, we went and played it for them, and they hated it. Well, most of the companies were not into rock and roll, especially companies mm-hmm. that were having Sinatra and Nat King Cole and all these great singers. Um, well, this guy who had dealt with that kind of music, he heard do the bop, and he said, that's terrible. Wow. So we went back to Philly, and we played it for Dick Clark, who was in Philly. A bandstand that came from 46th and Market Streets in Philly at WFIL. And so we haven't played it for Dick. And I actually have a clip of Dick talking about this. Um, he says, um, you know, everybody says, how much of an authority have you been in picking records? And Dick says, well, my average is just about average. He said, but these guys came in one day and they had a song called Do the Bop. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, well, the bop isn't really happening around the country. He said, but... Um, why don't you change it to something about record hops, like to change do the bop to like at the hop? Wow. So, oh, okay. That's Dick Clark. So, yeah, sure. So we rewrote the lyrics, and I was, like I said, I was under contract to another record company. So Dave's group, the Juveneers, um, had his lead singer, Danny. So we took Danny, and he kind of emulated my performance of do the bop to our new lyric of at the hop, which basically was the same lyric. There was very little yeah. changes. So instead of saying, let's go to the hop, it was, let's all do the bop. So we made some lyric changes, and um, Danny sang it. Um, Bam, record came out. And, of course, one of the biggest records of all time. And Wow. Um, that was the beginning. But I never knew that was going to be my life. It really, I never because I was a boy, and Dave was 16, and I was 19, and, and we were like kids. So yeah, I I I was working. I was working for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was working at a gasoline station. Uh, I was working in a record shop. 
And now, what was it like during that record shop thing? I was reading about that. What was the music scene like when you were working at that record shop? What was the buzz going on around in Philly at that time? Well, what, what happened was I, I did the record hops as Johnny Madeira and with my first record. So during that period, I met some really nice DJs. And two of the DJs I met had a radio show. This was uh, Ed Hurst and Joe Grady had a show called The Grady Hurst Show. And that was on uh, one of the big radio stations in Philly. And um, I did quite a few of their hops. And uh, one day when I was doing a hop for uh, Ed Hurst, he said, Johnny, he said, uh, you know, we got a record shop in the center of Philadelphia. He said, uh, you know, I know you work at the Inquiry. He said, would you think about maybe coming down and working at our record shop? I'd have to think too long. <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I went to work at the record shop, and I worked there about a year, a little over a year. And then I get a call from my cousin, who had a, uh, who was head of a finance company in um, West Philadelphia. It was in the black section of Philly, 60th the market. 60th Street was pretty much all black. Mm-hmm. And my cousin says to me, boy, we could use a record shop up here. There's nothing here at all. So I went up to 60th Street, and my cousin and I walked around, and right across the street from his office was a, uh, a small little building, an office available, right? a small little store available with a, two little windows in the front, really nice. Uh-huh. So I said, it was a kind of challenging. Because I, here I am, I'm in, you know, loving music, writing, and, and I did, at the hop, I did Rock and Roll's Here to Stay, and I did Dottie, which was the third Danny the Junior's record. So I did those three, um, produced, and I wrote two of them. And... And Dave went on the road. He was on the road working with Danny and the Juniors. So uh, I did a couple of other little productions. But then I said, you know something? Working at the record shop, that, that, that's going to be my life. I never thought I would be doing this for all my life. Wow. So I went to the record shop. I looked at this place. I, I said, I'm going to do it. Found what the rent was. Got the then start buying product. And the product I was selling was only jazz, gospel, and R&B music. That was it. I wasn't selling any white pop music. It was strictly black music, which I loved. So for me, it was great. I was in my in my environment. So I called the record shop the Gold Record Shop because I had a gold record for At the Hop. Uh-huh. So I put the gold record in back of the counter of the of where people checked out. And so people would come out and they'd check out and they'd say, yeah, what's that gold record for? And I'd say, well, that's a song I wrote a few years ago. I said, and they said, oh, yeah, I remember that record. And I said, well, I sing. I really yeah, he says, I got my, I got a group, and I said, well, well, no, why don't you come by after I close and let me hear what you got? Mm-hmm. And that started the ball. And um, this one girl singer who just passed away, Maureen Gray, um, she just passed away uh, two weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. Oh uh, yeah, she she was, oh she was 13 years old, came into the record shop and uh-huh. and she's beautiful. She's 13, beautiful girl comes in the record shop and absolutely drop dead beautiful and um, and she says to me I sing I said oh yeah I, you want to come by and let me hear you sing and she, and she had this little confidence with it it was really neat so she came by and, and um, I heard her sing and that weekend I was going to a record hop because I still was trying to do it as a, uh, do it as an artist I was still making some records and um, I had a record out called I'm So Alone and I had a record that I had to go to the Studis record hop, and I go, and, I, and there's Dave with Danny and the Juniors. And I said, Dave, man, how you been? He said, man, I hate working on the road. He said, I don't like it. He said, I don't want to keep on working on the road. And he said, it's really 
and takes me away from my kids. And, and Dave got married young, so we had two little girls. And I said, you know, why don't you come by the record shop? I said, There's a lot of these kids coming in. I, this one girl came in. She's 13 years old, but she's fabulous. So he, she, he came by, and um, we listened to her sing. He did. And we wrote a song. And um, I met a local four musicians. They were black musicians who uh, I got to be friends with. And they became like a little house band. And so we recorded Maureen, and her record went number one in Philly. And then we recorded a group called Billy and the Essentials. And that record became like a top five record in Philly. And so all of a sudden, we're making records. Then the third record we did was The Fly and with Chubby Checker. But what happened was we did it with this local band that we had. Mm-hmm. So we went down to Cameo Parkway Records, which was the hot label. With, they had Bobby Rydell and they had uh, the Orlons and the Dovells and, all, and Chubby Checker. And so we went down there to play this record we had recorded, The Fly. We played it for um, the head of the company, Bernie Lowe, and he liked it a lot. He says, he says, you know, I want to take your track and just put Chubby's voice on it. And so David and I said, no, nah, no, nah, we, we like the record we made. I said, we want to put ours out. He said, well, he said, if you put yours out, he said, we're going to cover it with Chubby. And Chubby just had the twist. He said, the perfect record for him would be The Fly. That would be great. So... When they said that to us, we decided, okay, take our track and put Chubby's voice on it. And they did. Well, the record was a smash, went to number two. and So now we were getting a lot of phone calls from record companies. And, you know, would you like to do this or do that? And so we did. We went, uh, there was a local label called Jamie Records. And we went with, up to Jamie and they gave us an office. Mm-hmm. Gave us $75 a week each as an advance. And, mm-hmm. uh, we uh, did the Pop Pop Popeye, and we had, then we started having hits. And they were always local, then they would spread, but we were having hits. And, and one day the phone rings, and it's a call from um, Chicago, from Mercury Records, the president, Irving Green. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, we love the records you guys are making in Philly. He said, uh, would you like to come make, make records for Mercury? So he said, we'll send you to a couple of airplane tickets, why don't you come up for a meeting? But we're, again, we're still, we're boys. We're, we're like just in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I was. I was 22, 21, 22, something like that. And Dave was like 19, 20, just turning 20, something. Like, that's roughly the age bracket. So we went up to Chicago, and um, we walk into this meeting. And, and you walk in this meeting, and there is Quincy Jones, this guy Shelby Singleton, who was a great country record producer, Irving Green, the president, and the vice president, uh, don't remember his name, uh, Erwin Steinberg, do remember his name here, Erwin Steinberg, and then a couple of other producers, but they were mostly jazz or uh, more better music type producers. We were more the teeny bopper music, you know, and it's okay. something they didn't have. So we, we played some new songs for them, and they were loving what we were playing, and then they, they said, yeah, what's the latest song you've written? So the latest song we had written was a song called You Don't Own Me. Wow. And so we played them You Don't Own Me, and they fell down. Quincy Jones, who was producing Leslie Gore at the time, uh-huh. he says, man, what a song. He said, boy, that, Leslie said, it's my party. Judy's turned to cry. For her to do something like this, oh, boy, this would be. So you guys got it this weekend. I want you guys. She's playing up in Grossinger's, in the, up in the Pocono Mountains. He said, I want you guys to go up there and play her this song. Okay. So, and again, remember, we're, we're, 
like in heaven. It's like these people like the records we make. We mm-hmm. called David. You realize they like this stuff. <laughs> and again, it was like fascinating for us. And um, so we go, we play the song for Leslie, and she flips out over the song. Then we, uh, Quincy tells us to go to see the arranger. We go to the arranger's house. We dictate the arrangement to him. We show up at the recording session a few weeks later, and we walk in, and they're already doing the song. So we drove up from Philadelphia to New York. And um, Phil Ramone, who was one of the great, great, great record producers of all time, uh-huh. he was the engineer at the studio. Wow. In our st- yeah, he was the engineer. But he wasn't... Phil Ramone, the great record producer then. He was just an incredible engineer. But he became one of the great record producers of all time. But he, he was our engineer, and he owned the studio, A&R Studios. So we walked in, and they're doing our song. And so we didn't say anything. We just stood in the back of the studio and waited until it was over. And Quincy turns around, and he knew we'd walked in. He turns around. He used to call me Nervous Norvis <laughs> because I was high energy. And Dave, Dave says about five words a week. He called him Gabby. <laughs> so he, says, he says, Norvis, Gabby, what do you think? So there was a few things that weren't the way that we had written the song, um, arrangement-wise. And we always dictated our arrangements, always. Every arrangement on our records was something that we sat with the arranger and told him what we, exactly what we wanted. And um, so Quincy says, Klaus, Klaus Ogerman was the arranger, stop the session. He says, John and Dave are coming out. And listen to what they have to say. He gave uh-huh. us 30 minutes. We made a bunch of changes in the arrangement. And uh, that was it. Came back in the studio. They did the song, bam. It came off great. And so then all of a sudden we had You Don't Know Me. And then that was really it. Then we started really having a lot of hit records. The Pixies 3, The Secrets, uh, The Sherry's. We just kept on having lots of records. And they, they would go like top 20, you know, maybe 28, 29 the charts and then they get down to 17, 16 but You Don't Know Me went number one wow and that was that was so wonderful you know again we're, we're kids and we're seeing this happening and boy I was in heaven mm-hmm. um, so after You Don't Know Me that was it we had like I said we had The Boy Next Door Pop 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 I'm trying to go down the artist here and think of the artist uh, The Boy Next Door uh, Birthday Party um Oh, just just bunch of hit after hit after hit of all these. They were kind of I always call them mediocre hits because they, they only got maybe in the thirties, twenties, but they were we were constantly having hits. Right. So um, all of a sudden, the phone rang one day and it was Decca Records calling, and they said, you know, we love watching all the records you're making at Mercury. So some of them are hits, and then some of them should be hits, but they're not getting airplay. Why don't you come over to Decca? So we, we said, okay. So we went to DECA. And DECA opens up an office for us in Philly. And um, the first record we made for them was 123. Number one record. Wow. And, and then all of a sudden, bam, Len Bowery had three smash hits in a row. Um, and we were doing our thing. And, and, it, and it, was, it was just wonderful. We had a record called The Dawn of Correction, which was an answer to the Eve of Destruction, and that was David, myself, and one of our DJ friends singing. And we just called ourselves the spokesman. And we went in wow. and had this record that went top 20, and the three of us were touring all over the country. So here are Dave and I, from being writers and producers, now we're back, Dave, being an artist. 
and it was it was it was trippy. It was really trippy to to, to like all of a sudden in the middle of our career, we we're out performing with Ike and Tina Turner and uh, the Turtles and Nancy Sinatra, Gary Lewis, uh, the Birds. Thinking of all the people that we had a chance to tour with and meet, I was it it, it was you know it, I get excited about that time because I never thought I'd ever be doing anything like that in my life. You know, I, I always thought I'd be living in the projects. Wow! So, it, it, every day for me was a growing experience in my life. It was every day was something that I never thought would happen. But there I was making records and hanging out with Quincy Jones, and he'd call Dave and I on the phone on a Monday, or he'd, he'd say, "Listen, I'm recording Sarah Vaughan this week. You guys want to come up for the session?" Wow! He, Quincy took a liking to us because we were young, <laughs> and. I, I, I guess, I don't know why, because maybe we're because we were kids and we were from Philly and we had a real reality about who we were. We, you know, we weren't part of the business. We right. were just kids from Philly who liked making music. Mm-hmm. So Quincy always took a big liking to us. And we went to Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, Diana Washington, Sarah Vaughan. He'd always call us. When he was producing one of those artists, he'd call us and say, you guys want to hang out? And we'd say, yeah, Absolutely. So yeah, we, so he he became a very good friend and um, and and just a just a wonderful wonderful human being and an incredible talent. And uh, so you know, then with Len Barry and had the hits of Decca and and, we, and then we start doing stuff for Cameo Parkway again. We had the, let the good times roll with Bunny Sigler and and we we were making hit records. And that's when uh, about '67 when Dave wanted to um, um, go his own separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, he it was it was a change era. It was part of that psychedelic era, uh-huh. and Dave got into being you know part of that era the the psychedelic lyrics, psychedelic type of uh, writing, um, and it became a problem with our writing uh, because I, I would give Dave a melody and a title for a lyric, and he would come in with a lyric that just was a little out there, and and so. We just stopped working together, and I so I they went his way, and I went and I took over the company because we had a lot of people signed, and we had commitments right. to make records, and so I took over the company, and that's when I discovered Daryl Hall and John Oates. I signed them, and I signed, uh, and I already had Leon Huff of Gamble and Huff. Uh-huh. I discovered Leon Huff. Do you know who Gamble and Huff are? Oh yes, I am familiar with them. Yeah, they're the Philly Sound. Yes, yeah, Philadelphia International. Yeah, they're great, great. I mean, I saw them when I was back east. I hadn't seen Leon for twenty years, and we we saw each other, and just it was it was it was a memory I'll never forget. And he walked up to me and Johnny, hey Leon, man, start talking. And I said, Leon, I got to tell you, all these years I've watched every hit record you made, and I knew it from the very beginning when I heard you playing piano in that bar. I said, this guy's major talent. I signed him and. And he was with me all the way up till their hits. They, in fact, I was co-publisher on Expressway to Your Heart, Cowboys to Girls, Only wow. Strong Survived, Never Going to Give You Up. Uh, all I just can't stop dancing. And so we had a relationship together with uh, Kenny and Leon. And um, and I didn't see Dave. I didn't see Dave for whoa for maybe over a year and a half. Yeah. And some checks were coming in, and so we opened up a checking account for Dave and. Start depositing his checks in the checking account. I didn't know how to get a hold of him. I didn't know where he was. 
and um, and that's about at the end of the '60s. It's just about when I I got an opportunity to record in California. I was recording an artist for Polydor, and uh, they said, "Where do you want to record?" So all the time, I keep on looking at the back of albums and our Beach Boys and the Mamas and the Papas and all these California records, and I see all these musicians. The same musicians, Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, Larry Nectel, all these great, Don Landy, Tommy Tedesco. I see all these great names. I'm saying, boy, what I like to record in California. So I told the, the uh, uh, guy handled budgets at the Polydor, um, can I include um, travel and hotel in there? I said, because I want to do this in California. He said, sure. Well, I said, I got on the phone. I'd never done a session in California got on the phone and I called uh, Western Recorders is where all the, most of these records were being made. And I got a hold of their top engineer and I spoke to him. He happened to be Italian, which was great. And um, and I said, Joe, you got another Italian here. I said, you got to help me book a session. And I said, I want these musicians, Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, Larry Nectel, Don Randy, Tommy Tedesco. So he did. He booked the musicians for me and I go to California with the artist from Philly and we record i got to tell you, I've done a lot of sessions in my life. That first session I did in California was like I was in some unbelievable special universe Wow! with these incredible musicians. I mean, not good, incredible. So I'm in awe, you know, because you guys played on all the Phil Spector records, all the Beach Boy records, all the Simon and Garfunkel records, and the Grassroots, the Mamas and the Papas, every big record that came out of California, Sinatra, Dean Martin, they were the rhythm section. So I walk into the session, and there they are. Mm. Well, I flipped out. I mean, I flipped. And I'm, here's Hal Blaine, and I'm telling him, Hal, can you play a drum fill here, a drum fill here? The great Hal Blaine who plays drum fills like no one I ever heard before. And we got, a, and Hal hit it, and I hit it off really well. So I was done that session, and I went back to Philly, and I said, i got to move to California. And I did. I moved the following year to California, and um, it opened up a lot of doors for me. Movies, I never had done a feature film before. I had songs in movies, but I never had done a movie. So I got an opportunity to do films, did a lot of television, and I got to work with the lead singer of the Mamas and the Papas, Danny Darty. They, they had just broken up, and uh, so they were looking to do someone to do their, his first album, solo album, and I did that, I did that, I worked... I worked with people I never would have had a chance to work with in uh, Philadelphia. So that was it. I started having hit records out here and um, doing some TV. I did the first John Williams soundtrack album before he was John Williams. He mm -hmm. was just John Williams. He wasn't John Williams, John Williams. Yeah. He, was great. <laughs> he wasn't a great movie composer then. He was he was super talented man. But I did the first album, uh, Cinderella Liberty, which was his first movie his first uh -huh. big soundtrack album. So I, I did uh, produce the album. And and I was just I was doing the Sid and Marty Croft show on Saturday. The kids show was a, a, a young kids show. I was doing all the music for that show. And then I got to do a, the sports theme for um, ABC. Um, and then, I, you know, I was just doing things that I, I really loved doing. And um, so that, and then my career just kept on blossoming in California. Um and that's about it. I, you know, we we had a lot of songs and movies. Uh, songs have been in over fifty films, right? Um, and the Mr. biggest, Holland I mean, Opus and Grease and Dirty Dancing, and oh my heavens! 
Catch me if you can. Um, You've had a lot of a lot of uh, blessings. American graffiti, yeah, American, American graffiti, American hot wanks. Uh, oh, just so many movies. And mm-hmm. and again, those things happen because of relationships out here. Uh, you know, you work with people, and they they think of you when they're going to use a certain song, and they'll and they will call you and say, "Listen, do you have a song that'll fit this particular scene?" Yeah, sure. I, yeah. So it, the opportunities became a lot more here for me because I really wanted to expand my creative horizons, and this was the place to do it. Um, yeah, so I kept on doing it and doing it. I got divorced during that period, which was not good. Um, I got divorced in 80, um, not a good year. Uh, 80 to 81, not no, 79 to 80, that's when I, we broke up in 78. Yeah, 79 to 80 was not a good year. That was a bad year. Didn't like that year. Though I was producing Wayne Newton at the time. Yeah, so no, I would have never got a chance to work with people like Wayne Newton. I mean, it was, it was fun. I mean, to go to Las Vegas and record this big Las Vegas star and take him in a different direction than he had right. been singing before. and Which was, that was such a thrill. Such a thrill to do that. And, and that, again, working with Denny Darty from the Mamas and the Papas and I would have never had those opportunities in Philly. And I did three albums with Wayne. Great guy. Great, great, great guy. I love Wayne Newton. He's just a nice man. Just a nice, what can nice you, man. What can you tell me about Dick Clark? You you, you, you knew him, and uh, he recently passed. And when we see the New Year's past, we think of Dick Clark, even though he's been gone now for you know, a few years. What, do you, what was your relationship well, Dick with was, him? He was, we were very, very close friends. Um, I used to, because um, I lived in the Sherman Oaks, and uh, Dick's offices were in Burbank. That was like five minutes from my house. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd get on the phone in the morning. I'd say, hey, Dick, what are you doing? He'd say, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't have anybody for lunch. You want to come over? So I'd go over to the, his offices and, boom, go right in. And he'd have maybe have a little sandwiches or something brought in. And we'd sit and we'd talk and eat lunch. And I did that a lot. Um, I went out to his home several times for dinner. Um, he was, I can never say enough about Dick Clark. He was, um, I get choked up when I think about him. He's, um, was a special, special human being. I would not have had a career if it wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he did things for me that there was nothing in it for him at all. He just did wow. it because he was a special, loving person. Right. I, 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 I spoke to him one day, he called me on the phone one day, and I, Always was surprised when he called me because it's Dick Clark. You know, he's busy every day producing tons of shows. And but he called me on the phone one day and he he said, "Hey Johnny," and he said, they always call me Johnny. Everybody calls me Johnny. Johnny, he says, um, "I found these uh, videos when you guys were out here in '65 uh, as the spokesman." He said, "I found these videos when you were on. I did our shows out here." He said, uh, "He said, would you like a copy of them?" I, I said, "Yeah, absolutely." So he, he uh, made up a videotape of them and sent, and sent them over to me. And um, I'll tell you, I look back at those videos and I see myself when I had hair and uh, <laughs> when I was a young guy. Um, uh, it, it, it's amazing. And those were all because of Dick. He just always was a kind person, always was a wonderful human being and, uh, and treated me wonderfully. I can never say anything about Dick Clark except I love Dick Clark and miss him terribly, mm-hmm. terribly. Yeah, he had, in fact, I have a little audio clip. Someone was interviewing him, and, and, and he said, they asked him about uh, Philadelphia Sound, 
and he says, um, yeah, well, he says uh, most of the records were made here. He says they were recorded in like a, bloom, a, a broom closet, he said. The room was so small, he said, we used to call it the broom closet. And he said, um, uh, and the songs were written by just uh, mostly only by certain people, a few people like Bernie Lowe and Dave Apple or Madeira and White. And, uh, yeah, and it had the same sound because it was all from the same studios and from the same area and same kind of artist. So I have that on a, on a little audio clip of him saying that. And it always makes me feel good because he always thought of us. And that Beautiful. was the thing I carry with Dick Clark in my mind. He always was kind to me and to David. Mm-hmm. Always. In fact, I think if you take a look at the people that appeared on American Bandstand, I think Danny and the Juniors were on there probably more than anyone else ever on Bandstand. Oh. Because that was Dick. A local group. Of course, that was his title. At the hop, it was his title. And then I had that, like I said, I had this, the uh, video of him where he's being asked that particular question. And then, you know, how good were your ears at picking hits? You know, my average was just about average. But I did have a hand helping Danny and the Juniors uh, uh, get their big hit at the hop. I forget the exact words how he used it. And he says, um, and then he says, we came in there and played him do the bop. So Dick, like I said, he was always there for us. So when I think of Dick Clark, I, my memories are all just, just wonderful, beautiful memories of this fabulous person. And, yeah, uh, I can't say the same about a lot of other DJs, but Dick Clark, I could say he was fabulous. Fabulous. Good man. Is there going to be an After Hot movie? Yes. There sure is. Um, we've moved a little bit. You know, I, I've been, what's happened is I've been trying to keep it as an independent production. I did not want to. I've had an offer. To take, I've had two offers to take it to into the studios, mm-hmm. but I, w- I wouldn't have control. Right. I would be out. It would be me just handing my screenplay over to them, and them making the movie. Mm-hmm. And I already got a great director. I mean, great director. I've got a great director of photography. I've already I've got Joe Renzetti who did the score for the Buddy Holly movie, Academy Award winner. He's going to do the score for our film. Um, I've already got a commitment from Olympia Dukakis to play a grandmother role. Um, this is South Philadelphia, 1957, the early days of rock and roll, Italian family whose father already has his son's life already planned out. His father was a total failure in life, but his son Bobby's going to go to the Philadelphia Conservatory of Music, and he's going to be the next Mario Lanza. Wow. And it's a great story, lots of tears, lots of laughs, but authentic. Not happy days, not American graffiti, not, not tongue-in-cheek. This is like mm-hmm. kind of through the eyes of Martin Scorsese. That's the mm-hmm. kind of film it is. Um, so I've had offers, but now we've got an offer where it would lead where I would be involved in the production. Um, so where are you going to shoot it? Oh, Philadelphia. Amen. Amen for the East Coast. No, it's got to be shot in Philly, and it's got to be shot in South Philadelphia where the story takes place. And it's got to be real. Mm-hmm. It's not. It, I mean, it's got to be as real as if you were looking at Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a voiceover in our in our thing through the whole thing. It's our main character, Bobby Petrilli, as, an, as a senior and uh, as an older man. Let's say it that way. And he's uh, talking about his life, kind of like in the beginning of Goodfellas, where Ray Liotta is talking about as a young man. He's discovered by the mob guys that he hangs out at the, where the mob guys hang out and then becomes finally becomes one of the mob. Um, 
but our main guy is um, Bobby, who eventually becomes uh, something in the end of his life. I won't tell you, make us a surprise. But he um, he's telling the story about his little brief moment of success as a as a singer with this little group he had. And it's about teenagers. It's uh, and so he, right away you get, you get the young audience, and it's about it's about them. Mm-hmm. It's 1957, but it's about them. 